Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I think one of the first things that we can do is to step back from a very simplistic notion of for-profit bad, non-profit good. You're listening to Crazy Smart Asia, a podcast exploring the unexpected stories of Asian disruptors. I'm your host, Tamara Lamigne. In 2021, truth can feel like an increasingly rare commodity. Never in the course of human history have we had so much up-to-the-minute information at our fingertips. Yet in the era of fake news, political misinformation, and rabbit hole algorithms, we've also never been so unsure about what's fact and what's fiction. Rewind the clock 50 years. Jimmy Wales, a small boy in Huntsville, Alabama, is obsessed with getting facts right. He's even using stickers to update his family's encyclopedia, adding to and editing entries. That tiny experiment in crowdsourcing information and the realization that the sum of human knowledge is never really finished would spark something inside of him. Decades later, Jimmy founded Wikipedia, the world's greatest ever experiment in the democratization of access to knowledge. Today, Wikipedia is the fourth most visited site in the world. Its billions of page views a month leave the likes of Amazon and Twitter in its dust, making it indisputably one of the most influential global brands of the 21st century. From helping high school kids with their homework to busting misinformation about vaccines and climate change, Wikipedia is a vital cultural touchstone and advocate of truth. Through it all has been Jimmy's unwavering desire to marry both purpose and profit. So is it true that he put Wikipedia into a charity foundation when it was worth over $3 billion? Well, yes and no. In conversation with Genty's regional editorial director, Lee Williamson, Jimmy sets the record straight on turning down billions and talks about the power of community, the value of failure, and why he's not trying to be the anti-Zuckerberg. Here's our conversation. Thanks a lot for doing this. Uh, I appreciate it, Jimmy. It's great to talk to you again. Um, a lot has happened since we spoke uh, about six weeks ago, but maybe if we start talking politics, we could go on all day. Um, instead, um, I want to begin, if you're up for it, with a bit of a quick fire round. Okay. And there's a lot of things that people would want to know about you. And so I want to ask like 10 or so quick fire questions to kind of see what's on your mind, if that sounds okay. Sounds great. Okay. So... Huntsville, Alabama, where you were born, or London, England, where you now live? <laughs> well, I, I actually live uh, mainly outside London in the Cotswolds, and I have a beautiful view of the River Thames, so I'll go with London. Okay, good choice. What's the secret to longevity? You've had a long, successful career. Is there one particular secret? Um, I mean, I think you have to enjoy yourself, um, because anything that you're doing that you're not enjoying... Um, you should stop doing it, but if you must keep doing it, you're probably going to burn out and not be very creative. Uh, so for me, one of the things that has helped me is recognizing that I am not a manager. I have great respect for people who are good at managing, but I'm not a manager. 
Interesting. Uh, so I always try to get a good CEO in as quickly as possible when I'm working on something new, just because I know I'm going to be terrible at it. Who is your hero, Jimmy? And who is your comic book villain? <laughs> I mean, hero, that, that, there's a lot of people. Um, you know, what always comes to my mind when I think about a hero is uh, particular people who I really prefer not to name specifically, but people I know of who are working, uh, writing very high quality, very neutral Wikipedia entries while living right. in authoritarian states um, and, and facing great risk, not for being activists, but for just writing simple, basic truths uh, about the world. And to me, that's an incredibly heroic thing that's often unrecognized and unsung. Um, I mean, my cartoon villain, I mean, this is the least original, uh, but it's got to be Donald Trump. You know, he is a, he's a cartoon. And he's definitely a villain. So, so there you go. He does have uh, that cartoon qualities, doesn't he? he certainly as well. does. He certainly does. Um, okay. Do you have a mantra in life? Uh, no, I don't. But I mean, the, the closest thing that, that I would have, which isn't exactly a mantra, but it is always something that I find interesting about myself and that people find interesting, is something I've come to accept on myself is. Every day, I, I like to just get up and do the most interesting thing I can think of to do. Um, unfortunately, I'm a geek, so that doesn't involve, you know, jumping out of planes or anything like that. Um, right. It, it involves uh, reading, uh, thinking up a new idea, working on a new concept, uh, that sort of thing. And so for me, that it's not really a mantra exactly, but it does mean that I have a low tolerance for uh, paperwork and things of that nature. So <laughs> it causes me a problem sometimes, but... A geek that doesn't like paperwork, yeah, right? Exactly. Um, of the accolades that you've won and milestones that you've reached throughout your career, which one has meant the most to you personally? Oh gosh, um, I don't know. Uh, that's a that's a, a really good question. Um, I I just have no idea. I mean, I've had some cool moments, but but you know, I I nothing that brought a tear to my eye in that in that sense. I mean, I. I once was invited for a ceremony that, to celebrate the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I stood with all these sort of, and, and there's Gorbachev next to me. Uh, and here I am, and we're going to release these balloons that we released with that thing. And it was a big event in Berlin. And I was like, what am I up here with Gorbachev? Like, it's completely insane. It's not like I was moved uh it was meaningful to me but it was more like this is surreal like there's a hundred thousand people <laughs> out there and i'm up here with with gorbachev so it's very strange right amazing well that sounds yeah pretty freaking surreal so what's non-negotiable for you in business or life it's interesting because the, the word non-negotiable is one that is quite important in the history of wikipedia in that very early on uh i set down the principle that uh neutrality is non-negotiable, that, that we, we weren't going to have a debate about whether Wikipedia should be a progressive encyclopedia, a conservative encyclopedia, or whatever. It's to say, no, we're here to document the facts. We're going to be as neutral as we possibly can be, given that we're human beings, and that's, that's always a complicated question and a tough struggle, but that that would be non-negotiable. And that has been a theme that has, you know, in turn reflected back to me and influenced me to try to be as neutral as I can be in my yeah. sort of public statements. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm not entirely neutral, 
trying to be factual always. Um, but um, so for me, that's that's quite important. Neutrality. And is there something that's maybe not too surprising that you think that is there something surprising about you that people don't know? Um, I know that, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about odd things, uh, amazing experiences I've had in life. I mean, one that I find quite amusing is that I, I once was in uh, Bulgaria and I went on a late night television show and, and they surprised me by handing me the lyrics to Sweet Home Alabama and uh, had the band play and had me sing Sweet Home Alabama because they had learned that I was from Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, and so I was, uh, I can't say forced, I was there by free will, but I was surprised to be singing uh, Sweet Home Alabama on Bulgarian national television, which is uh, a great moment in life. You know what? They probably learned you're from Huntsville, Alabama the same way that I did, which is through Wikipedia. <laughs> so you're kind of, you right. know, the master of your own demise that way, Jimmy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. How do you want to be remembered? Oh, I, you know, I, I, I don't really think about that sort of thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think when we, when we look at people in, in certain positions, um, that people are interested in, um, I think, you know, how do we remember, uh, Steve Jobs now? I would say probably a little more negatively than, than before, because there's been a lot of information. He's apparently quite a difficult person to work with and, and very sort of demanding and so on and so forth. I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm a very, very nice person. And uh, that's probably why I'm not a good manager because I just never want to tell people to do things, you know, and so on. Um, and so that's an odd thing to be remembered for is like, oh, he's actually, you know, like he's just a nice guy. and uh, Just being a nice guy. <laughs> kind of pleasant. <laughs> the second season of Crazy Smart Asia is sponsored by BNP Paribas Wealth Management. We live in a dynamic and ever-changing world where innovation leads the way, a world facing unprecedented challenges. We need to change the way we create and consume to fuel the next wave of change and build a brighter, more sustainable tomorrow. BNP Paribas Wealth Management is proud to support Crazy Smart Asia on its mission to tell the stories of inspiring leaders who are doing just that. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, so we've been through our uh, quickfire questions. I love the fact that it took for, a- for ages to do our quickfire <laughs> questions because it meant that we got lots of stuff covered. Well, this is, this is one of the things I always say about I have far more, I, I think roughly twice as many followers on Quora, which is a question and answer kind of website, than I do on Twitter. And I always say it's, I'm not really a, a you know, 280 character kind of guy. I, I right. try to speak in paragraphs and, and make my points <laughs> in a more comprehensive way. So I'm not very good at yeah. quick fire. No, that was great. I loved how much ground we managed to, managed to cover uh, rather than just kind of superficially. Um, I don't want to do a run through. You know, Crazy Smart Asia is about unexpected stories of Asia's disruptors. We often talk about people's careers and how they got to where they are today. I don't want to dwell on that too much because it's a story that's very well told um, with your career. But, but I do want to focus very quickly uh, on the beginning and how you found your purpose in life because it's such a delightful story. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your first encounters with encyclopedias and where that first spark came from? Yeah, so when I was uh, a child, my mother bought from a door-to-door salesperson the World Book Encyclopedia, um, which uh, you know was a, a fairly good-selling product, and, and it was a, a, a standard sort of aspirational thing for parents to buy for their children. Um, and I absolutely loved the encyclopedia. Um, and so I, I read it quite a lot. Um, anytime I was bored, I would go and just look up a random thing and read. And I really, really enjoyed it. And then the, the funny little side note on this is that they, what World Book does is they, they send out every year, or they did back then, I assume they still do. They send out every year an annual update. And in the annual update, I remember, you know, for example, uh, people had landed on the moon. And so there was an update to the article on the moon in the whatever early 70s uh, annual. And so you would go and, and they sent you a, a block of stickers as well. And so you could go into the original M, look up moon, and then put the sticker saying this article has been updated, uh, see the 1975 annual or whatever. Um, and so I just think that's a bit amusing now is, you know, I used to do that with my mother and, uh, you know, so it was like my first experience of editing the encyclopedia and updating it. And that idea that an encyclopedia is not set in stone for all time, but new things are learned and, and, and the world moves on. Yeah, absolutely. And the original Wikipedia was, was stickers uh, and, and uh, in print, although I'd hate to think what the stickers for 2020 would say. Um, <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be a depressing uh, compendium. Um Wikipedia is, you know, a huge experiment in collaboration in in communities coming together to edit to produce something greater than themselves um, and knowledge sharing. What do you think the power of community is? Something you've obviously been able to harness really, really well throughout your career. Like, how do you build community? How do you harness it for like a uh, a common purpose? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think there's a few things. Uh, so one of the things that we can recognize is that talent is very widely distributed in society. So there are loads and loads of people who know things who don't pursue them in a professional capacity. So people who have an enormous amount of knowledge about um, ancient Chinese poetry for some reason, but they're not ancient Chinese poetry professors, you know, and they're out there. And, and providing an outlet for that type of person to share their knowledge and to find an audience of like-minded people has been a part of it. 
Let's say the other thing is, you know, having a clear uh, and simple vision of where we're trying to go. So a free encyclopedia for everyone on the planet in their own language. Basic principles like we're neutral. Um, we want to have reliable sources. You know, those clear things you can learn in about 10 minutes. And now you've got pretty much everything else, all the details of Wikipedia. You can almost work out from those basic principles, um, you know, that we're, we've got a, a mission and we're trying to accomplish it. And knowing where we're going means that, that you, you can get agreement and you can actually move forward. And, and if you're having some sort of a, a community consultation, you, you know what the ultimate values are that you're trying to achieve and so on and so forth. And also that, you know, that, that vision is something that people think is basically good. Uh, you know, the idea that everyone on the planet through this incredible invention of the internet should be able to get access to high quality knowledge that's neutrally presented so they can learn about something. It's just like, yeah, obviously we should do that. That's a, that's a worthwhile thing to, to have done as, uh, human beings on this planet. And so that, that makes it a lot easier. Um, because a lot of times when people are trying to create community or build community, if they don't have a clear sense of purpose, um, then it, it becomes harder because then when there's a conflict, people don't know how to resolve that conflict. They don't know where are we really trying to go and, and so forth. So a common interest and a common mission, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so like I said uh, just now, you've done so many interviews in the past. A lot of, you know, so many column inches have been written about your journey. I want to ask you just a few really, really broad questions, almost existential, almost, uh, just kind of see, see where they go, um, basically. Um, what's been the hardest lesson that you've learned um, throughout your career? Hardest lesson? Um, this is where being a pathological optimist makes questions like this hard because everything seems quite all right to me, um, always. Um, you know, I mean, I think uh, it, 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 it took a while and it was a hard lesson to learn that I'm not a good manager. Uh, you know, that wasn't something I started out knowing. Um, I didn't. How did you learn that? Well, by managing people and realizing that I was quite terrible at it. <laughs> you know, I'm quite laissez-faire about what other people are doing and, and people often want and need sort of tighter direction uh, because otherwise it's it's a bit like well what am I supposed to be doing here it's not clear to me um, and so I'm not I'm not that good at, at doing that sort of thing uh, and I give people the benefit of the doubt and sometimes I've been stung by that uh, so that that's that's a tough one uh, because I like that about myself uh, that I think the best of people but sometimes it's kind of like yeah and then this person really took advantage and that's unfortunate um, so th those are, you know, lessons that I've maybe learned in the abstract, but I don't think it's changed me. So right. I just have to acknowledge I'm, I'm not going to be the one to, to, to fire someone because they're not very good at their job. So perhaps linked to that, or maybe not based on what you just said, um, what's your biggest regret? Is there anything in your career, if you could go back and do some more like one important thing differently, uh, what would it be? Or again, are you happy with the lessons that you've learned along the way? I mean, yeah, I'm, 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 I would say fundamentally, I'm, I'm happy with the lessons that I've learned along the way. Um, because I would say that there were definitely decisions that I made that ended up being incorrect, but they were good decisions based on what I knew at the time. So as an example, before Wikipedia, 
the project, we had Project Newpedia, which was the same vision of Free Encyclopedia, but I didn't know about wikis. Top-down, it was very top-down structured, organized in a different way entirely. And it didn't work, and we wasted nearly two years on that. And, you know, but I can't say, you know, oh, I could have started Wikipedia two years earlier had I not screwed up and, and, and made that mistake. But I had to learn. I had to try it the other way, and I had to think it through, and, and I had to gather a community. And actually, a part of what happened during those two years was a lot of really smart people got together on the mailing list and started talking about what does it mean to have an encyclopedia, and how would we do it, and what would it look like. And so it was two years of intellectual chewing on the idea. So in the end, was it really a mistake not to launch a wiki two years earlier? I don't know. Like, we'll never know. Um, so it, it's usually things like that where I say, oh, yeah, maybe I would change that, but I'm not sure I could have. Uh, and you can't regret not doing something that you couldn't do at all. So, The very first time we spoke, you know, before the cameras were on and everything, that you said, you know, it is a bit of a cliche among entrepreneurs, but it's really, really true that the power and the importance of getting comfortable with failure. Why? Mm. It's something that you see so much, like it's on T-shirts, it's on quotes, posts on Instagram. Why do you think that is so, so based in reality and so important? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that, um, you know, if you are too afraid of failing, then you're you're not going to try the thing that might be, like, super interesting. Um, and you can have a, a sort of, you can fail because you were afraid to try something. Um, and often that failure is kind of a depressing grinding failure um, rather than a failure of like, well, I tried this big thing and it didn't work out, but I learned a lot. But I also think when we talk about that, getting comfortable with failure, it's not only something that people need to do internally. It's something that we need to do culturally um, to say, actually, if we see a, a young person trying something new, a new business, and it doesn't work out, that's not a tragedy. Like, that's actually cool, right? Uh, the tragedy is the young person who took the boring job in the bank and hates it, and three years later still hates it and is in a grind and doesn't know what to do, as opposed to the person who kind of flamed out but learned a lot of interesting things. We need to cherish and value that kind of innovation because, you know, we're facing enormous challenges. Uh, you know, we've got uh, a long way to go to eliminate extreme poverty around the world. We've got a long way to go to eliminate uh, racism, nationalism. There's a lot of bad ideas out there, a lot of bad things going on, and a lot of incredibly amazing good things going on. And we need innovation. And this is something that I think California does very well. So if you're, if you're living in Silicon Valley and you're a young entrepreneur and you, and you start something with a bit of angel seed funding and it doesn't work out, you're going to get a great job at, at Google or, or Facebook or something like that because those companies don't think, oh, you've done a failed business, you're a failure. And I find that in other cultures, so the UK's in the middle, uh, I would say continental Europe, a little lower. And in Asia, sometimes it's quite difficult. And Asia is a huge place, of course. So it's, it's, you can't really generalize about every place and every subculture and every language group. I mean, it's, it's, a huge number of people. But there are a lot of cultures in Asia which do tend, so in, in Japan, for example, this is quite a tough thing. Like parents want their children to get a job at a big company. And if you're a young Japanese person and you want to be an entrepreneur, that's actually quite a bit more family stress 
because it isn't lionized in the culture and it isn't accepted in the culture. And so I do think that that not all of Asia, because clearly Asia has some fantastic uh, hotspots of entrepreneurship and of innovative thinking, no question about it. But it, you, you may find that there is still a certain kind of traditionalism uh, and family culture, which is maybe not that comfortable with uh, the young, you know, uh, sort of 20-something kid who is going to go out and create a company because people are like, oh, wow, you, you left your job at Citibank. Why would you do that? That's a fantastic company, you know. You could work at Mitsubishi, you know. It's kind of uh, that sort of thing. So I do think that that... That's the one thing that I would say is, is an interesting twist uh, for entrepreneurs in Asia uh, in, in some parts. Mm, absolutely. Um, on the flip side of that, on the mistakes and, and the failures, has there been one uh, or a couple of important decisions that you kind of look back on as absolutely fundamental to, to your success? Well, I think we, we already talked about neutrality as a principle for Wikipedia. So that I would, I would call one of them. The other one I would say is, um, you know, one of the earliest rules of Wikipedia um, was no personal attacks, um, which is the idea to say, look, we're here as a community to write an encyclopedia, not to attack other people, not to attack each other. We're going to have disputes and disagreements, but we should dispute. We should have a disagreement about the content and and about the sources and all this and not insult people and not kind of uh, have that attack culture. And that's, you know, now when we look at social media platforms, which are chock full of abuse and personal attacks, it's kind of like the, the, the main thing they're used for in, in certain cases, then you sort of say, wow, I didn't really think of it as something that would be really wise in terms of creating a healthy culture. And, and the Wikipedia culture has flaws. Like we have problems internally. We're human beings, um, you know. But in general, what you won't find at Wikipedia is the kind of sustained, you know, high intensity attacks and disinformation campaigns and all that. You find like basically nice people who get into fights, you know, in arguments, or or they overlook their own biases in certain ways and so on. Uh, and so that. I think is incredibly important, but it's not something that when I made the decision to say no personal attacks, it's just like, I don't want to deal with people yelling at each other. <laughs> it's a simple thing. It's like, could you please not insult each other? That's like kind of super annoying. Don't do that. Right, right. And, you know, uh, in 2019, you launched WT Social, which describes itself as a non-toxic social network, which I think is very much, it seems, to counter this issue, um, as well as our social media echo chambers, uh, as well as the, you know, the issue of disinformation, which I know you've, you've, you've uh, uh, compared to secondhand smoke in the way that it damages the quality of public life, which I think is, is a beautiful comparison. Um, based on what you just said, though, um, we talked about this a little bit before, I, I get the impression that you feel this kind of obligation to be something that other internet figures aren't. You know, you said that you're a nice guy. You've often been described as the good guy of tech. And you do seem to, from Wikipedia to WT Social, you do seem to build products that are different to what everyone else is doing, sometimes even antithetical in the case of WT Social versus a Facebook, for example. Um, you know, you're kind of a lone wolf in some ways. Like, is that a fair assessment? Is that something that you, a responsibility you deliberately consciously take on? Um no, not not necessarily. I mean, I just like to do things I think are interesting. And so with WT Social, what we're trying to do is say, can we build a social network that's completely 
kind of radical in, in its thinking about, uh, you know, almost everything on the platform can be edited by anybody, which is kind of a bit bonkers, but hey, I'm the wiki guy. Um, you know, the idea that we, you know, we should have certain standards of, of decorum and, and politeness while still allowing people to express their, their thoughts and their opinions. Like these are challenging, hard problems, but I find them very interesting problems. And so it's not really about sort of living up to a reputation or, or having a certain thing. Um, and also it's, I don't know, lone wolf sounds kind of odd to me. Lone, lone bunny rabbit, maybe. <laughs> Just trying to have my little fun place over here with some nice people. So you're not trying to be the anti-Zuckerberg. You're just trying to create yeah. playgrounds that you want to be a part of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And to, and, to, and to think through these interesting sort of big picture, you know, how do we design healthier places online, places that are meaningful? And I, I'm, I'm actually really intrigued by some of the trends that have come out of, uh, out of lockdown um, in that, you know, the, the number of minutes, apparently, I just read this the other day, I haven't actually checked the, the figures myself, so as a Wikipedian, I'd say citation needed, but um, somewhere I read that the number of minutes that people are spending on Zoom uh, are now greater than the number of minutes people are spending on Facebook. And I think that's really interesting. And I'll just tell a, a little story about that. You know, my family, we do... Uh, now, every Sunday, we do a Zoom call. And so before this, you know, I'd say we, we enter, we've got the family WhatsApp groups and, uh, you know, we've got the, the you know, I, I like, hit like on my sister's picture of her dog, you know, on Instagram and that sort of thing. But all those kinds of things are such thin human interactions. Um, whereas the use of video to actually meet with people and talk to them uh, is obviously because of lockdown, uh, but also in, my, in the case of my family, is because we live, we, we we're very geographically separated, and lockdown kind of pushed people to realize, like, actually, you can do quite a lot socially. That's family and friends, seeing your loved ones, uh, and so. But that, you know, to me, I'm 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 really chewing on that and saying, oh, this is actually interesting that we've we've come to think of social media uh, as sort of posts in a feed and hitting like and making comments. And that, by the way, is what WT Social is at the moment, and I'm, I'm working on that. But I'm really exploring, okay, what can we add to that that's that's different, that's a more rich social experience, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, people just meeting on Zoom with their family to play a game, or is it um, doing uh, Zoom seminars? A friend of mine has a thing called Interintellect, um, where she gets interesting people together and she'll have a, you know, sort of a special guest of the week and they just have a conversation. It's about 20 people and I think that's actually really cool. She's doing like an intellectual salon, but on Zoom. And so I think that's a much richer social interaction than, oh, I've got 150 followers or I've got 150,000 followers. That's not social. That's broadcast. That's, that's not interacting. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all those kinds of ideas, not because I want to be the anti-Zuckerberg, but just because that actually sounds cool to me. I'd like, I'd like more of that, please. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Um, I think also, you know, Zoom is the best way to recreate human interactions that we have with technology, right? Because it is essentially just a person talking to a person, but just through, you know, uh, complicated technology. Um, no one's trying to be, no one's being enraged to keep their eyeballs on the screen any longer, you know? 
It's it's yeah, exactly. you're producing exactly. the content in a very authentic way. Um, I want to ask you about an issue that every entrepreneur faces, and that's balancing purpose, building the things that you want to build, making the world that you want to make, as you've discussed, and also, you know, we're in business making a profit. Um, so you famously established a foundation uh, and donated Wikipedia to that foundation in 2003, despite a huge valuation at the time, something like three billion US dollars. Um, so you drew that sand, that line in the sand very, very early on and said, this is what I'm about. Um, can you share some experiences or advice with young entrepreneurs listening to this podcast who want to kind of do good, but they also want to make a good living? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think the first thing I have to do is say, um, you know, that that is a great line and it paints me in a certain light, but I wouldn't say Wikipedia was worth $3 billion when I put it into the foundation. Um, we were in the depths of the dot-com crash. It just seemed like an interesting, proper way forward and so on and so forth. I can tell you this, if uh, if someone had come to me on the day that I was filling out the paperwork uh, to create the Wikimedia Foundation so I could put Wikipedia into that structure and said, Jimmy, actually, hold on a second. Here's $3 billion that we'll transfer into your bank account. Uh, I would be like, yes, thank you very much. I'll take the $3 billion, right? Uh, it, it wasn't that sort of like super crazy thing I did. It was like actually... Here's this interesting thing. It's growing. I don't really have any idea about a business model. The dot-com crash is, is full on. I think this is an interesting way forward. And I think that this project, for a lot of natural reasons, which do make a lot of sense, should be in a nonprofit structure. And so I just, just went in that direction. So it, it wasn't that sort of, uh, sort of crazy anti-money thing. So I, you that's know, how I, it'll I, get written in the movie though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, hindsight. yeah. Yeah. And then I, and then I, rode off into the sunset in my white horse. <laughs> I think one of the first things that we can do is to step back from a very simplistic notion of for-profit bad, non-profit good. I just think that's that's really like a silly thing. And I say that even while also saying like I'm very critical of the existing business models of the social networks, which do drive them in a very fundamental way to want to optimize for addiction, for outrage, because it just keeps people on the site longer rather than enriching their souls. And so I think that's a problem, but it's not about, it's a, it's a problem of a flawed business model. You know, there's nothing wrong with starting a great restaurant and charging fair prices and making a lot of money, right? That's a good business. And so I think that what you can do is say, look, how do you think about your whole life and all of your values? Uh, and it's perfectly fine for one value to be, I would like to make some money. Um, I would like to be prosperous. I would like to have some nice things in life. But also to align that with values uh, to say, uh, you know, I want to have a positive impact. I want to do things that I think are worth doing and that are meaningful. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that's, that's really great. And, and in fact, I often think that more often than people realize those two things are actually in alignment. Um, simply because these days consumers, uh, in many, many fields, they, they have power, right? They, they know what companies are doing. They approve or they disapprove. Uh, they actually appreciate, um, you know, proper behavior. Uh, and they will buy products from companies that they think are being ethical and, and good. Uh, also, when you think about what are your relations with your, with your employees, if you want to be really successful in a company, um, you really want to have interesting, creative people 
who are really passionately inspired to do amazing things. And you don't get that by treating them like, you know, serfs on a plantation. Uh, you really do have to, to value and respect other people. And so in, in most cases, you know, these things are, are aligned and, and in some cases they aren't. And if they aren't, then you probably should think about whether you actually want to make money that way. It may not make you happy. We'll be back with Jimmy Wells shortly. But now let's get the thoughts of Lemuel Lee, BNP Paribas Wealth Management's head of Hong Kong market. He talks to Lee about marrying profit and purpose in business. Jimmy Wales talks a lot in the episode about building purpose and impact into your business model. So what does BNP Paribas' next-gen report discover about investing for impact among ultra-high-net-worth individuals in APAC? Well, Asia has seen a prolific value creation in the past couple of decades, with majority of wealth creators from the first gen now at the cusp of an intergeneral transfer to the second gens. Mm. The value of investing to next-gen is no longer just about returns. They're actually concerned about social environmental issues. About half our samples indicated interest in sustainable investing and about the other half in impact investing. What clearly emerged in the next gen is an interest in making their own business more sustainable, impactful, and responsible without affecting the bottom lines. What else interesting is to share is that the average portfolio allocation is 19% in sustainable investing and 14% to impact, which is about in line with the average global portfolio allocations. So what needs of the next gen aren't currently being met in this space? Next gens are seeking measurability and clarity when it comes to investment opportunities, not generic products, but customized sustainable and impact investments. At BNP Paribas, we have a My Impact Survey, which is an online tool to understanding your sustainable impact and philanthropy needs. We use those to customize portfolios aligned to the client's values. Measuring impact is notoriously a tall order. How are next gens measuring the impact of their investments? Well, measurement is based on a client's customized value and impact. And each impact is unique. A common reference used would be the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. What trends do you expect we'll see in ESG investing over the next few years? A clear trend we see accelerating is the strong inflows to ESG themes in the last 12 months, such as energy transition, clean water, education, to name a few. At BNP Paribas Wealth Management, our strategy is to integrate ESG in all our products and services. We want to bring it to mainstream with our clients so that they can invest sustainably, impactfully, with purpose. And now, back to Lee and Jimmy. A question that I ask every every guest on this podcast is, look, you're a successful person. A lot of people want to reach your level of success and never will. What's the difference that got you to where you are today? Is it that marriage of purpose with business plan? Um, yeah, in, in part. But I, I also think, you know, anybody who is honest uh, has to recognize that there is definitely an element of luck. Uh, and I don't think like, I think this is a tricky topic because some people would go so far as to say all the people who are successful just got lucky. Uh, and I don't think that's it. You know, I think there is actually genuinely, uh, certain, you know, talent, insight, seizing the moment at the moment it needs to be seized and so on and so forth. 
But there's a certain amount of luck to say, look, you can be all of those clever, amazing things. And, and you were, you know, a, a year earlier, a year late and, uh, you know, it didn't work. Uh, and, and, and that's okay. So, um, you know, I just think, again, it, it has to do with, for me, the way I think about it is it, it's like optimize for doing interesting things and value doing interesting things that increases the chance that you're actually going to be successful at it because you're going to find it interesting and, and inspiring. Um, but it also means that if it isn't successful in some external measures like profit or whatever, um, it still will have been a valuable thing to have lived through because it was interesting at the time. And, and so, um, you know, I think that that's the way I kind of structure my life around those, those kinds of questions. Final question uh, for me, Jimmy. If our listeners take away just one insight from this conversation that will help them build a better world, what do you want? What do you want it to be? I, I mean, I, I just think you know, do things that that you think are interesting and are consistent with good values. That's it. Just, just stop doing things that you don't like because they're boring, or you don't like because you're not comfortable with with what the implications are. Just don't do those things anymore. And in your own life, you'll find you're in a much happier place. Sound advice. Jamie Wales, thank you so much for joining us on Crazy Smart Asia. Lovely. Great. Fantastic. That's it for the first episode of the second season of Crazy Smart Asia. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a review and a rating while you're there. Gentis Y is to discover, support, and help to increase the impact of Asia's most promising entrepreneurs. If you know someone who would resonate with these stories and take something from them, please do share the podcast and help bring them into our growing community of young leaders shaping Asia's future. You can also follow Generation T on Instagram. We're at at Generation T underscore Asia. And check out our website, GenerationT.Asia, for more on the people, businesses, and ideas shaping Asia's future. Next week, Lee will be talking to Ankiti Bose, co-founder and CEO of e-commerce platform Zilingo, about sacrifice, pivots, female leadership, and the curse of the near-unicorn tag. Until then, do try to remember... If you are too afraid of failing, then you're not going to try the thing that might be super interesting. I'm Tamara Lemunier. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.